Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right. This may be one of the more odd lesson titles that you've ever seen or heard. Atheist-making Bible verses you need to know. Just keep in mind that quotation marks are around atheist-making. They are allegedly verses, believe it or not, that atheists say should cause you to be atheist. A.A. Milne, author of the Winnie the Pooh series, uh, once said, the Old Testament is responsible for more atheism, agnosticism, and disbelief, call it what you will, than any book ever written. I'm not saying you shouldn't or couldn't read the Winnie the Pooh series to your children or to yourself. I'm saying that, unfortunately, he had some wrong ideas about the Bible, but this is what he exclaimed. Kenneth Leonard in a YouTube video said, Bible study, in my experience, is almost a surefire way to make atheists out of Christians. I will say this, that although I think that the best way to study the Bible is, uh, is slowly and meditating on, on it and not rushing through it, and sometimes when our goals are noble, like reading the Bible through in a year, that um, sometimes we may rush through things and not really give it the proper attention that it deserves. But I will say that uh, if the Lord gives us long enough to live and we become Christians and we have an opportunity to read all of God's Word, we need to read all of God's Word as Christians. There was a, uh, a student, atheist student organization out in Texas, I forgot which university it was with at one time, where a someone who identified as a Christian walked over to their table and began to say, you know, you, you really shouldn't be atheist and started talking about atheism, to which the atheist responded, and this was reported uh, in an article that was written several years ago that, you know, asked the Christian, well, have you read the entire Bible? And the Christian said, no, I, I haven't read the entire Bible. To which the atheist responded, well, the, the, the scriptures that you haven't read, I have, and that's why I'm an atheist. To which the Christian did not have a response, or at least not a logical one. There are those who claim that they're atheists because they've read passages, thought about passages, that you haven't, and it made them atheist. The well-known uh, juggler, entertainer, uh, musician, and uh, I guess somewhat Hollywood kind of star, Penn Jillette, said, I read the Bible cover to cover, and I, I think that anyone who is thinking about maybe being an atheist, if you read the Bible cover to cover, I believe you will emerge from that as an atheist. The Bible itself will turn you atheist faster than anything. Hmm. Well, I've been studying the Bible my entire life, reading it, hearing it read, and it hasn't turned me into the, an atheist yet. Am I being dishonest with the evidence? Am I not being fair? And am, am I not being open to what the truth actually is? When asked about why the Bible would be uh, something that would make him an atheist, he said, well, because, because what you get told about the Bible is a lot of picking and choosing, supposedly, by Christians like you and, and me, that we just kind of pick and choose passages. He then gave his first atheist-making Bible passage saying, when you see Lot's daughter gang-raped and beaten and the Lord being okay with that. That was the very first thing he mentioned in his popular YouTube video on, you know, why he became an atheist that was put out by Big Think and that has received somewhere between 2 and 3 million views. And supposedly the Bible should make you an atheist. 
And if you read all of it without just picking and choosing it, it should make you an atheist. You know, one of the things I love that we do at, at Wetumpka, just something that, that we decided years ago, is that we were going to read through the entire New Testament together, I mean together. So part of our meetings every Sunday is just reading a paragraph or two or a chapter at one time, and we'll have some comments on it. That's in addition to what we do in Bible class and worship. And it's just something that we want the, the, the brethren there to understand. We are not ashamed of any passage of Scripture, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament. There may be some passages that are more difficult than others. There may be some passages that are more sensitive than others. I mean, do, do husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sometimes talk about things that are quite plain to children? And then sometimes, are there some things that they don't talk to their children about because they're not yet mature enough to hear some of those things? Are there things that we are careful about, how we word them? Yes, and there are a number of different topics that are covered in Scripture that we're going to look at carefully and sensitively. But that doesn't mean that we are ashamed of any of it, including what all was going on in Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19 or some of the sins that you can read of the Canaanites in the book of Leviticus. I mean, they are so grotesque that it is somewhat uncomfortable to read of them in a mixed audience, especially with young children in them. Yes, there, there are some things that are, are sensitive, but God expects us to be mature with His Word, and we don't have to be afraid or ashamed of anything. But let me ask you something. Is what we read in, in Genesis 19, should that make us an atheist, as Penn Jillette, who's quite popular, and um, you know, people oftentimes in society, they'll listen to what the popular people have to say and they allege, well, hey, what you read there in Genesis chapter 19, what Lot did, that should supposedly make you an atheist because God was okay with that. You remember there what happened in Genesis chapter 18 where the Lord and two of His angels appeared to Abraham in human form and then the two angels were sent to Sodom And there Lot saw them and encouraged them, you need to come and stay with us. Don't sleep out here under the stars in this town. He knew that there would be something wrong with that, and so he invited these guests into his home. He was ready to protect his guests. From what I understand in that day and that time and that culture, and Dave Miller has a good article on this on our website, that they... uh, they took hospitality so seriously, it was like to a, a second and third level compared to oftentimes how we think about hospitality today. I mean, they were ready to protect their, uh, their guests much, you know, and, and also do a lot of feeding of their guests and, and those kinds of things. However, should Lot have done what you read that Lot did in Genesis chapter 19 when he said to the angry mob who gathered outside of his house from all over, people from all over the city came and they wanted to assault the two men that they saw go into or had heard that were in Lot's house? To which Lot responded, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. First of all, and we're going to go through this one kind of quickly and move on to the next one. There's nowhere in this passage that says the Lord was okay with this. As I read what Lot did here as a father of a daughter, I am disgusted by this. I mean, this is repulsive. I, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, why in the world did Lot not say, over my dead body? I mean, he could have just, he could have just locked his door and prayed and said, hey, 
Lord, you know, keep us safe. Keep us all safe from the harm that is outside and the harm that is wanting to be done to us and especially to our, our guests. He, he, he could have offered himself. Of course, he did go out to talk to them. They, didn't, you know, they, they were already quite disgusted with Lot. Lot was very different than the inhabitants of Sodom. Okay? They viewed him, Genesis chapter 19, they viewed him as a judge who keeps acting as a judge. Does that sound familiar? Like that gets said today a lot of times by, by people who say, well, wait a minute. You know, the Bible says that this is sinful. We can't be a part of this. Oh, quit acting like a judge over us. So Lot was very different than the inhabitants of Sodom. In fact, when you read in 2 Peter, Lot's called righteous three different times. But this wasn't his finest moment. This is a disgusting moment. And the Lord was never okay with this. The Lord was never okay with what the inhabitants of Sodom was doing. The, the, were doing. The, the angels who were in the appearance of men, they struck these individuals blind. God ultimately destroyed these cities for their wickedness. And neither on this occasion were Lot's actions viewed as righteous or later on when his two daughters got him drunk and they had him sleep with them is that something that God condoned? There's nowhere in Scripture that says this. Oftentimes in Scripture there will be events that are recorded. There will be actions that you will read about that God expects you and me to use our good Bible common sense to know God's not approved of this. He is revealing to us though some of the good and some of the bad actions that various ones have taken. The second, the second uh, so-called atheist-making Bible verse that Penn Jillette mentioned in this popular video was God telling Abraham to kill his son. Penn Jillette said, Abraham being willing to kill his son. This is a direct quotation from the video. The London's Telegraph lists Genesis 22 and verse 2 as one of the top, this is the title of the article, the top ten worst Bible passages. Genesis 22 in verse 2, in his debate with my colleague Kyle Butt several years ago, Dan Barker said, Remember the thing about when Abraham, he, God, asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? By the way, Abraham should have said, No way, I'm better than you. I'm not going to kill my son. Dan Barker is uh, sadly no friend of God. He is an atheist. He is an enemy of God. And he does not mind saying things that are horribly, terribly irreverent and disrespectful to the omniscient, omnipotent, all just and righteous and holy and loving God. Dan Barker has said all sorts of repulsive things about our God. But according to these enemies of Christianity and these individuals who contend that the Bible should make you an unbeliever, that Genesis 22 and verse 2, that this is a repulsive verse where God told Abraham, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Is this a terrible, horrible verse? That's a, that's a fine question to ask. We should never approach Bible study like, well, we're not, we don't want to talk about that because that's a... You see, that might be part of the reason that we're in the situation that we're in with perhaps uh, non-religion growing like it has in this country where so many people have just ignored, not wanting to talk about, not wanting to explain or deal with some more difficult Bible passages. And I, I would like for you to, 
to be encouraged by our study this morning because I want you to see, I want our young people to see, I, I want all of us to see because it's not just young people sometimes who are attacked and who are drawn away from the faith, sadly. It can be people of all ages. But I want you to be encouraged by the fact that we are looking at what are, are said to be the toughest Bible verses, like the, the worst Bible verses. Genesis 22 and verse 2. Well, how can you... How can you logically, rightly, justly explain what God said to Abraham to go take your son whom you love and go offer him as a sacrifice? Go kill him. How do do we deal with that? Well, let me freely say, and I have no problem saying this, that this is one of the more unusual verses of Scripture. It is... It may be viewed as one of the more difficult verses to deal with. I have no problem saying that because there are some verses that are much easier and yet maybe hard to apply, but like, love your neighbor as yourself. Can I understand that? I certainly can. That's, that, that's actually one of the harder passages of the Bible, though, because some neighbors are hard to love. And God wants us to love everyone, including those who seek to do us harm, including our enemies, including atheists including those who are infidels and who seek to do the work of Christ harm. This is one of the more difficult verses of Scripture, but it's not, it's not overly complicated and too hard for us to understand and for us to be fair in dealing with. You know, we talked about last night one of the fundamental principles of Bible interpretation, especially as we are dealing with difficult passages and comparing one passage with another, is we observe the context. And you know what passage that has seemingly been often ignored or what statement or verse is the one before Genesis 22 and verse 2? It's the one in Genesis 22 verse 1 where... We read, now it came to pass after these things that God, I'm reading from the New King James, and if you're reading from any other translation just about than the King James, you're going to see the word tested. It's from the Hebrew word nasah. The King James, unfortunately, has the word tempted. God was not tempting Abraham to sin. He was testing him. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Does God test us? Has God historically, I mean, has He tested his people. You know, soon after, right after reading about the Ten Commandments that God had given to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, you read in verse 20 that Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to, it's the same Hebrew word, not to tempt you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. God test you. He came to test you that you may not sin. God tested the Israelites. God tested Job. God tests us. God tested Abraham. This was, so here's the point. This was a test. John chapter 6, you can read where there was a great multitude who was following Jesus. And they were hungry. And one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the apostles, Philip, came to Jesus in in John chapter 6. And he said, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Where shall we buy bread? I mean, excuse me, this is what Jesus said to Philip. I'm sorry about that. This is what Jesus said to Philip. So he asked Philip a question. Now, did Jesus not know what he was about to do in feeding the thousands there with some bread and fish? Did Jesus not know what he was going to do? No, he knew it. 
The very next verse says, but he said this, but this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus tested his disciples. God may test us providentially in various things that go on in our lives. Listen, if it's going to help us grow, even though we might not like the test, though Abraham no doubt did not like what he was told to do, this was a test. And let me continue as we think about Genesis 22 and understand this. That unlike human beings, and we've talked about this especially Friday night, human beings do not know the future. Mere human beings. Only God knows the future. And God, if He reveals the future to humans, like He did in those who wrote the Bible, where there were many predictive prophecies and promises about the future, promises about the future, thus an attribute of holy inspiration of God and a proof of the Bible's inspiration. Here's the thing in Genesis 22, God knew the future. God knew, God knew what? God knew that he was never going to allow Abraham to kill his son. This was a test. You may not like the test. The atheist may not like the test, but it was a a test. God knew that he was going to tell Abraham, do not kill your son. Do not, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. You know what God knew when He told Abraham to go sacrifice your son? He knew He was not going to allow Abraham to do it. This was, Genesis 22 and verse 1, it was a test. And God knew that He was not going to allow Abraham to do this. If In fact, in fact think about this. Had Abraham actually killed Isaac when God said, do not lay your hand on the lad, would he have been obeying God or disobeying God? He would have been disobeying God. Does God have a right at one moment to say, Eric, don't go this way? And then later, Eric, go this way. Sure. Because maybe at one time he doesn't want me to go there, but at another time he does. And I'm not saying that God communicates to me in that way. I'm just using that as an an example. God was testing Abraham. You you may say, well, this is still just kind of odd, Eric. I mean, it's an odd account. Well, let me me, uh, remind you that God was testing Abraham and that Abraham passed the test amazingly because this is the kind of trust that God wants us to have in him and in his word. God had been telling Abraham for a number of years now that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, through his seed. And when when he and Hagar got together and Ishmael was conceived and born, it wasn't Ishmael. That's not who God had chosen. It was going to be through Abraham and Sarah. And it was going to be the son Isaac. And the chapter right before this, in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 12, we read, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. At the end of that verse. In Isaac your seed shall be called. Abraham, go and sacrifice your son Isaac. Abraham did not doubt God. What a role model Abraham is for us. God, give me that kind of faith. God, help me to be that trusting. I want to go wherever you tell me to go. I want to follow wherever you lead. I want to do whatever you say, even if it seems hard, even if it seems impossible. God, give me this kind of faith. I'm so thankful that this account is in here because it is encouraging. Abraham said, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go sacrifice my son. 
At least that's what he was thinking. He got up early the next morning to follow and do what God said to do. And then the text tells us in Genesis 22 and verse 5, he tells those servants who had gone with them a certain uh, uh, a part of the way for three days, he then says, the lad and I are going to go yonder. And we, we will come back to you. But Abraham, I thought you were going to go sacrifice your son. Oh, oh, I am. But we will come back to you. Don't you love what the Hebrews writer says? That by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, Hebrews eleven seventeen, And he who had received the promise, the promise, See, he knew that it's through Isaac's seed that all nations should be blessed through Abraham, through Isaac. So if I slay my son Isaac, if I offer him as a sacrifice, what do we read here? Of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding, Hebrews 11 verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Oh, this is doubtlessly in Scripture in in part just because it's such an encouraging event that occurred some 4,000 years ago. But I can't help but think this is also in Scripture. And though I don't know that there is any other comment on it in this way, that this is a foreshadowing of the coming of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world It just seems like that this is a picture of what is to come. I mean, Jesus, since Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, was the promised Messiah who would come. He was the promised Son who would come. You know, Isaac was the promised son of of Abraham. Isaac had the wood laid on his back that he carried up to Mount Moriah. Jesus carried a cross to Calvary. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and God not allowing Isaac to be killed by Abraham made it possible so that a ram had been caught in the thicket and the ram took Isaac's place like God has Jesus taking our place. This is a marvelous account. And yet it's allegedly an account that should cause us to run away from God instead of it picturing really God's love for us. Here's a third alleged atheist-making Bible passage. God supposedly wants us, can you believe this? God supposedly wants us to dash our little babies against the rocks and to kill them. I mean, really, this, is, this verse right here was listed, Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us, happy the one who takes and, dash, who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. This was listed by Dan Barker as the number one worst Old Testament verse in his article titled, you know, I've never had an article titled like something like this, you know, the 10 worst Old Testament verses by... Eric Lyons. I don't put my name in the titles of articles. That seems, I don't know, it seems a little odd. Uh, but anyway, he, he did it this way. The 10 worst Old Testament verses. 
and number one on his list. So I want you to know, I, I hope this is encouraging to you, that we're not trying to, well, let's avoid talking about these things here because, I, you know, this is some hard stuff. No, you know, truth has nothing to fear. We may not always know every answer to every question that people ask. I get asked a lot of questions, you know, that begin with this. Why did God do such and such? And I oftentimes tell people, well, I don't know why God did such and such unless God revealed why He did such and such. Or unless there are some uh, good indicators in Scripture, some principles perhaps that we can look at and say, well, it would seem that God did this for these reasons. You know, I was just asked, uh, I guess it was a few nights ago, you know, why doesn't God appear, you know, to anyone and everyone who, who, who wants to see Him, who challenges, you know, God to appear? In fact, this man who came up to me a few nights ago said, you know, what if an atheist, like we've heard before, says and challenges a, a theistic professor or just a Christian? You know, if God exists, then let Him appear to me right now. So why doesn't He, why doesn't he just appear? Well... That's a, that's a fine question to ask. There's nothing, nothing wrong with asking that question. Uh, I, I can say that I may not know exactly why he doesn't appear, but I can say that he obviously is not appearing because he's choosing not to, number one. He, he chooses not to. And I can believe, based upon everything else I read in Scripture and see in his created realm, that if he chooses not to, he's got good reasons for not appearing. Number two, even if God did appear, you know, some people wouldn't believe He was God. You know that? You know how I know that? Because God did come to earth 2,000 years ago and people didn't believe that He was God. And you know, even if God did appear, and even if some people did believe that He was God, you know that some people still wouldn't obey Him. You know how I know that? Because when God did appear 2,000 years ago, even one of His closest confidants chose thievery over righteous living chose betrayal over conviction to Jesus Christ and following Him wherever He leads. Chose to commit suicide rather than repent of that sad, terrible sin and live a life of servitude to Jesus Christ. So even if He did appear, and even if some did believe, some would still be afraid to confess Him, just like those uh, those individuals were in John chapter 12 who were afraid that they would be thrown out of the Jewish group that they were in if they had confessed that Jesus Christ... Oh, they believed secretly, but they weren't really ready to confess them because the Bible says they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Well, there may be a number of reasons why God doesn't appear, but I, I will say that, sure, there are questions that people ask about God that I don't know the answers to because I am not God. And God has chosen not to reveal every single little thing that we might like to know. I'm just thankful of the things that He did reveal to us. And sometimes it's hard enough to get God's people to read those things that He did reveal to us. In John 21 uh, verse 25, you know, there are many other things that Jesus did that are not recorded here. If, the, if Listen, if everything, and I know this may be stated by John through by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through some hyperbole or exaggeration, if, if everything Jesus ever did were written in Scripture, the world couldn't contain the books that would need to be written. I don't know why God did or did not do everything He did or did not do unless He has revealed some of those reasons to us. But here's what I do know. There's not one Bible passage in... There's not one Scripture in the Bible that should lead anyone to be an atheist, including Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. Well, then how do we, how do we deal with this subject matter? 
I mean, according to the London's Telegraph, uh, this passage is often omitted from readings in the church, apparently because it's just too bad and we're too embarrassed to read it. Let's Before we you know, give a verbal defense, 1 Peter 3.15, before we, uh, you might say, defend the truth, let's be on offense for a minute. And I mean righteously on offense. And ask, upon what basis would an atheist say that killing a child is wrong or, or evil? According to atheism, logically. I mean, this is the logical conclusion. If, athe- if atheism is true, then everything is permitted. If there is no... God, Jean-Paul Sartre said many years ago, then everything is permitted. And that would include murder. You know, Peter Singer, who was a leading atheist, said back in 2000, he said, killing a disabled infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Very often, it is not wrong at all. So again, I, I, I can't help but ask Dan Barker, who, who would contend... In fact, he did so in his debate with Kyle several years ago that there are no absolute moral standards. If that is the case, then anyone can think of some scenario when murder would be right or when he even said this in the debate, when, when rape might be you know, okay because you can't say that it's always, always wrong because there is no moral standard if God does not exist. And Peter Singer went so far as to say, well, you know what, you could kill little babies if, if, um, if, they are, if they have some defect, for lack of a better term, you might kill them, and this is not morally evil. Sadly, you could ramp up that thinking even more when reading writings such as Alberto Jubilini and Francisca uh, Minerva's article from 2013. Secular bioethicist who in writing for the Journal of Medical Ethics, they argued that what we call afterbirth abortion, killing a newborn, should be permissible in all cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. Whether the newborn is disabled or not, what does that have to do anything? But this, you know, when this article came out, from what I understand, the abortionists were not very happy because they saw where this was logically leading. Oh, wait a minute. If you're saying that you can use the same arguments we use for abortion being okay to kill children who are born and who, let's say, have no uh, quote-unquote defects, then that might cause people to realize how heinous the killing of unborn children are. And so some people tried to distance themselves, as I understand it, from this article. These two individuals went so far as to say that if a mother, that a mother should have a right to kill her child, should have a right to do so even if there are other people who want to adopt that child. Because, they argued, adoption could be difficult on the mental state of the mother, even allegedly more so than killing the child who is already born and outside the womb. So I bring this up to you, not to disgust you, but to say, wait just a minute. I mean, it is disgusting, I know. How can an atheist, and some of these same atheists, criticize the Bible and the God of the Bible for allegedly wanting people to go out and kill children if they rationalize 
killing children. The philosophy of atheism, when taken to its logical conclusion, leads to these kinds of statements. I'm not saying that every atheist believes this or that every atheist takes atheism to its logical conclusion. But this is where it leads. So let's go back to Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. What does this passage mean? Does God really want us to go out and kill babies? You know the answer to that, but how do we explain this? Well, we do what we talked about last night and that you've heard, no doubt, many, many times. And that is that we look at this statement within its context. Now, of course, all of the different songs or psalms, they are you know, written independently of each other. And so the book of Psalms is one of those books by its very nature, kind of like the song books that we have. You don't really interpret one song by another song oftentimes, unless maybe it's the same writer who's talking about the same things. And so you have different psalms. And so there's not a lot of context except what is within that very one singular psalm. Well, you know what? We can still understand this. And I don't understand why Dan Barker, who allegedly used to be a Christian and now is and has been an atheist for many years, how he can continue to contend that this is one of the worst Bible passages. In fact, he says the worst Bible passage in the Bible when it doesn't mean anything like he says it means. Because what we have going on in Psalm 137 is one of the faithful Jews who was carried off into Babylonian captivity is writing about these matters, saying, by the rivers of Babylon, Babylon, I'm reading from verse 1 of Psalm 137, there we sat down, yea, we wept, when we remembered Zion, we hung our harps. There they are, he is remembering Jerusalem, from which they had been ripped from their, in their homeland. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for there those who carried us away captive. Who was it that carried the the Jews away captive, well, it was the Babylonians, verse 3, carried away captive, asked of us a song. Let me ask you if, if, if uh, something. If, if someone takes you from your house in the Huntsville, Alabama area and takes you to another country and keeps you as a kind of captive or prisoner and then asks you to entertain them with song and mirth and, and uh, you know, the, the songs of Huntsville, Alabama, play them for us. I don't know about you, I'm not very musically inclined like like some of my friends, but I'm not going to feel like singing a song or playing a tune. That is just the first bell, right? We have one more bell, is that correct? Verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. I'm not going to entertain these these people with songs of Jerusalem, my homeland. I I can't do that. And then he says in a prophetic way, Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed. Well, who's going to destroy Babylon? The Medes and Persians are going to come and destroy Babylon. Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. The people who destroy you, the people who are coming... Does the Bible prophesy about the, coming, the, the, uh, the rise and fall of nations? Absolutely. A number of times throughout the Old Testament. And here is a, another example of that. Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes, you, takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. 
He's not commanding people to be happy who, who are going to destroy your nation and, and take and kill your children and your babies. He's saying the Medes and the Persians are coming and they're going to wipe you out and they're even going to kill your children and they're going to be happy when they do it. That's what this passage is talking about. It's not saying that God wants you to be happy to kill children. Finally, in just the next couple of minutes, let me, let me deal with this one. This is one of the more frequently... Uh, in fact, several of these kind of are, are similar, right? Genesis 22 and verse 2, Psalm 137 verses 8 and 9, and then passages like that we read in Joshua chapter 11 where... We read that all the cities of those kings that Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword, he utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And so, allegedly, those kinds of verses should make you an atheist because God has commanded uh, people to go and kill other people, including children, and that should make you an atheist because God is a mean, angry God. Well, first of all... uh, we understand that punishment is necessary at times. We expect judges to righteously punish evildoers, and God has done that throughout history. God has done that with individuals at times. God has done that with nations at times. And generally, people understand the need to punish evil doing. And when you don't do that, you have a lot of problems in society. If parents never punish their children when they do wrong, if children at school who go to school, if they are never punished and they can just cause chaos daily, that's not a, that's not a place where you can learn. So punishment is something that, yes, God has done, that He believes in, and most right-thinking people do. But secondly, God has always been very, very, very long-suffering. We see long-suffering with Sodom and Gomorrah? Absolutely. Read Genesis chapter 18, what Abraham was doing on behalf of Sodom, and God said, sure, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, even 10 righteous people, I'll, I'll spare the city. Was God, did the divine long-suffering long wait in the days of Noah for decades and decades? But did the people ever repent? No. And did God destroy them? Yes. Did God literally wait hundreds of years, Genesis chapter 15, before He, He prophesied of this, before He gave, Israel, gave the Israelites the, the land of Canaan and tolerated and and patiently waited for those Canaanites. Maybe they would repent, but they never did, and God destroyed them. He justly did so, but He was very long-suffering with them. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is long-suffering. He always has been. That is His very nature, but He's not eternal suffering. Judgment Day comes. Sometimes it comes in this lifetime for individuals or nations. It will come for everyone at some point in time, spiritually speaking. What about the innocent? Yes, sometimes the innocent have perished because of the wicked deeds of those around them. But let me submit to you that we have a really a wrong view of death. You see, the atheist thinks that this life is all there is. But according to Scripture, what we have is God, I say simply, God really lovingly transporting the safe or the saved individuals throughout history, who have died alongside their wicked counterparts, He has ushered them immediately into paradise. Let me just say very quickly, if if I'm a Christian and everyone on this planet who are Christians that God took like Enoch and Elijah, and I'm left here, 
You think I'm going to be happy to be here by myself? God, take me too. You see, a lot of times people think that God killing the righteous, that that's a terrible thing. But in these situations where the righteous died as they were a part of wicked, um, wicked families or wicked civilizations, God, in essence, just removed them from a terrible place and a terrible state and terrible lives that, that they would be living if they grew up in that culture and ushered them into paradise. I never have heard anyone say that what God did to Enoch and Elijah was terrible. God took them, just took them out of this physical realm and took them to a much better place, right? You know, I don't hear Christians talk about when Jesus comes back one day and the world ends that that's a terrible thing for God to do. I mean, if Jesus were to come back today, our physical lives as we know them will end. But isn't that going to be a grand day? Don't we sing about it? Don't we look forward to it? Don't, don't, don't we think about how awesome it's going to be when, when Jesus comes back? The fact is, brothers and sisters, though we don't have time to go through all of this, that there's never been a good reason to be and to remain an unbeliever, whether an atheist, an agnostic, or a skeptic. If you'd like to read more about this, remember the Apologetics Press website has 99%, I guess we could say, of all of the things that we've ever produced on our website for free. And so make use of that material on our website. You can type in a lot of these different things just in the search engine on our app or on our website. These things will come up in article form, book form, or video form. But I do hope maybe you'll check out some of the materials in the back. In fact, there's an article in the back called Making Sense of Life and Death where some of these matters are discussed. Thank you very much for your kind attention. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.com dot org.